Alrighty, good. Um, hey, Stephen. Are you here? Yeah, you're here. Do you think you're going to be drinking your water? Oh, no, that's all you. Is it? Thank you. Does anybody else want one? We can make arrangements for you. Announcements, we have the men's breakfast tomorrow. Many that have found that to be um, highly encouraging have also found it to be highly nourishing. So John and Candy are up with their grandkids in Coos Bay. And so we've got, I believe, Craig doing pancakes. Is that right? Is Are we doing hash browns too? Did we do that too or sometimes? Okay. So it's the hash browns and pancakes and scrambled eggs, bacon and sausage. Um, and you're welcome to invite your friends, men, for that. And some of you, as you know, when you come in, we know that you have to be on the clock at a specific time. So you're welcome as well to dine with us. And if you can stick around for the devotional, that's always a blessing. That's the only announcement I have. Continue to keep your Galesville calendar check to see if you got your trailer parking spot or your tent space we intend to go we're not going to lost creek there's not much water there shasta i didn't hear a lot there i think that we have a good report still in galesville water's flowing there from somewhere i'm assuming that that's from the throne of god because uh, there isn't a lot of water in these here united states there is a drought it's a spiritual drought but sometimes it's symbolic in terms of what it is we don't see so even if the snow falls god's the one that determines the how much it falls and if he chooses to work in the lives of humanity by inspiring men to fall on their knees and to pursue his face then there are a variety of ways that he does that we're in these times where there's pestilence and there's drought there are wars, there are rumors of wars, there are disease. And these are the things that, though they are unpleasant and seemingly put us at peril and risk, Jesus is the answer. Fundamentally, he's the answer. Foundationally, he is the reason that we can say we will have peace. It's different than what a British gentleman did at the time. I believe he was prime minister Chamberlain, we have peace in our time. And then the Nazis took over Portland and started a World War II. There is peace in our life, even though there is great turmoil on the global scene. And as you know, it's been two years that we have gone through a scourging and a pandemic. So one of the things that we find in the unpleasantries is to savor the word to continue to embrace his promises and his presence. It's one of the things we'll see tonight. On tonight's theme, and you can draft this, the title is going to be Jesus Stands His Grounds and Walks Upon Them. And we're going to see how that plays out. It's chapter 12. Thanks for asking, Dale. Chapter 12, we're going to pick it up in nine. <laughs> 
we're going to pick it up in verse 9, but I'm going to have a little bit of a kind of just a review. It won't take the entire teaching. As you know, last time that I did the review, I transferred a component part of the teaching to Sunday. For those of you that were not here or may desire to remember, it was going against the grain and eating it too. That was what chapter 12 was about. And this is what I'd like to highlight. So I'm going to pray, then I'm going to highlight what that was about, bringing us into right now what we will discover Jesus is saying. And it's a very deep passage of Scripture. To close 12, we won't be able to do it, not on the way that I teach. But um, it has substance for us. Lord, we ask for your blessings. Thank you for the worship that just tuned our hearts that we were able to minister to you in song that you gave. You inspired the words. You constructed the melody. You married the two, and we have beautiful hymns and songs and spiritual utterances that we give to you as we esteem your word and ask for the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for that evidence both within us and the things which we also see in the very presence of you, wherever we are, you're there with us. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen. And that was the point that I wanted to make. Verse 6 says, yes, I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Chapter 12, reflecting back on verse 6, yet I say to you, that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Where was he? He was in a grain field. A wheat field is our presumption, satisfying the hunger of his disciples and inciting riotous disposition by the Pharisees who were watching him violate the laws that they were so intent on the people of God to keep when in fact that was not the purpose whatsoever. The law was simple that the priesthood would follow, but they became those architects of imposing things that God never intended, and of those it was the burden of trying to keep law to please a God who was quite actually pleased just to have the basics exercised by the people, just people that would come and gather, render their offerings, desire to hear teachings in the portico. And by the way, Jesus would have been one of those very popular teachers in Jerusalem, in the temple area, very likely the woman's court is what we understand. That wouldn't have been the most popular area to teach. It was for Jesus. He included them, is what it meant. And in that inclusion, it meant so much in terms of the liberty that he has indeed done because he's the author of how men and women both live and learn and worship God. In this idea of the field of wheat, I also used it illustratively to say, as most of you know, when we're asked, what field are you in? Most of us don't say, I'm in a blackberry field right now. I'm in a wheat field. Uh, I'm kind of in a cattle 
field right now, cornfield, we usually will say, well, my field is education. My field is nursing. My field is in forestry. My field is, you name it, it's a field. And the reason I felt that was important is in what Jesus is saying. He's, he's literally in a field. So are you and I. It's a field that God exercises us in. What other fields are there? Husbandry, parenting, being a wife, daughter, son. Those are fields. They are actually areas where we are both being trained and we are exercising the training that we have received. Here, this is a field. It is both a harvest in which God has gathered us, but it's also where he's preparing us. It's a place where the Lord in his field, and it says this very clearly, one greater than the temple is in this place. I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Whatever place you're in in the field that God has given to you, there is one greater than even the temple that history has unfairly omitted if there are great wonders of the world, the temple would stand to be preeminent over all of them because it was the chief marker of God himself giving display of grandeur. It was fortunes upon fortunes of what would be represented in gold and precious marble, gems and stones. So it was extraordinary. It's funny how the world system is kind of yeah, not so much there. But look at Babylon. Well, Babylon's not much now either. Oh, but the gardens were, really? Who says so? But the temple was extraordinary. And yet not more extraordinary than the one who literally it was built for, the Son of God. And as you know, in AD 70, it was torn down stone by stone and every dripping of molten gold was collected by Rome and soldiers and carted away. And picking up where we're at now, which is verse 9, Jesus left this point in the hearts of the Pharisees that challenged him. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Because they're saying, what are you guys doing? You're walking through the grain field, which is a violation. You shouldn't be working by walking. And you're eating. That means you're preparing food for yourself. And actually, the eating is a work. You shouldn't be doing that. You should be fasting like we are. The question I would have for them, if they're guilty of walking, what are you guilty of following them by walking? <laughs> Isn't it interesting how we look at someone else, and yet in order to see the someone else, we have to be within a proximity. This is something, again, that the Lord was very, if you would, cool about handling. He just gives out renderings of a scripture, of an incident with David. They couldn't argue the fact that even David entered into the house of God in a time in which he and his soldiers were weary and hungry, and they ate the sacred showbread. As such, because it's the Sabbath day, these Pharisees would say, even the grain that you have in your hands is sacred unto God, and you're blaspheming. That's when Jesus simply says, I'm the Lord of this day which you're protecting, 
and I'm the one that established it for these who follow me. It wasn't established to be followed, it was made for man. I created man and woman in my image, and I tend them and I take care of them. In verse 9, as he declares himself to be Lord, even of the Sabbath, he is brought to a point where it is validated in the miraculous. There's a need that is going to be coming up as there now is a conspiracy that is embroiling this grouping of Pharisees. Now, it wasn't the, what can we cite against him? It was the fact that they didn't want to see any more of Jesus. And so they were actually, even before this, but in this moment, planning his demise. When he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. So we don't necessarily know where the where is, but we do know that with regard to this entourage of Pharisees, Jesus is now headed to their town. And I think that's kind of funny because on this day, he's actually going to enter in to the place that he feels they ought to be, if indeed they are sincere in what they're saying about the Sabbath, not hunting him down to accuse him of violating the Sabbath. So he now, being seemingly a violator of the Sabbath, is actually going to enter the synagogue. That's where spiritual men, and many of them, though not all of them, were in some way linked to the synagogue or to the area in Jerusalem, the temple, Pharisees and Sadducees, the governing spiritual authorities. And so they're meeting on this day to both hear the reading of the word and to discuss the laws of God. He goes there. And behold, it was in this place. Notice there was a man who had, wither, who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? They just did accuse him. They accused him of eating and laboring and walking on the Sabbath. Now they see that there is a man who has an infirmity. The infirmity appears to be a withered hand, a paralysis of some kind, perhaps from an injury, perhaps from birth. But right now they're using that not in the context of compassion, but of testing what will Jesus do now faced with either honoring the law, no work, or honoring mercy, which he's just given us a speech about, because he did. Verse 7 was his speech, short one. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So man in his infirmity, in what appears to be in the synagogue, this spiritual place that Jesus now has entered into as a spiritual man and as God, as Lord of the Sabbath, and as one who has already performed sufficient miracles that we have both read and conjectured about, sufficient miracles that at least three cities were condemned for not believing in him as God. 
And so Jesus says to them, as they are desiring to use this to accuse him, what man is there among you who has one sheep and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? This is what he says to them. And they're kind of like a gang right now. Probably what we would consider very sly. The kind that you wouldn't want to necessarily meet in a dark alley at night. Knowing that their hearts are intent on hurting Jesus, both in reputation and ultimately in demise. What a classic speech that he's giving right now to them on this one by invoking a question which causes them to have to have an answer. Notice what he does based on what he knows in his heart, their thinking, of how much more value then is a man than a sheep. So these were kind of like the first environmentalists or PETA group. The justifiers of making a grander and more purposeful, compassionate, understanding effort for the animal kingdom than for God's humanity. And it always is an error. God's given man really a world to be able to keep, and there are, complex, there are complexities in that. But he never gave the animal kingdom to man to be worshipped. It was for the provision of needs that God so divinely made available. So many things that we enjoy in all of nature. And Jesus is saying, it's fine that you rescue the sheep. He's not indicting them for that. But how dare you not show the same compassion towards a man or a woman in their time of need? That's essentially what is being said. Because you would do that for a sheep, but how dare you not do that for a person in need? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. My men are hungry. It's good that I feed them. It's good that by their hands, the industry of them reaching out to what God has brought up from the earth, given rain to the soil, nurtured by the sun, matured in that season, that in that specific time, a need would be met and a work necessary. The work was, remember, removing the chaff and blowing on it and being left with grain that you would then indeed work on. I would likened, I think, to a pistachio, the frustration at times of getting into that shell, but the reward of what happens when you do open it, or the fistful of pistachios you get because they've already been shelled. Which of each is the better? It doesn't matter. The point was being made is that there's a satisfaction that God gives in meeting needs. And this is what we see Jesus doing. He's meeting needs as his disciples are following him in the field. Jesus meets needs for his disciples as they follow him through your field. And whatever it is that is your vocation, that's your field, God makes provision and it's unquestionable.
Rob and I were laughing on the phone. At least I was laughing. He was laughing too. But we both had almost identical circumstances in which the provision of God's mercy was with us in what could have been a calamitous event. A smaller boat that we take to Galesville that I was preparing for that trip a couple of years ago, maybe last year, I honestly don't remember. But I do remember this. When I filled up, pulled out of the gas station, I heard this horrendous screeching, and it was my boat that popped off the ball, and I was dragging it across the 101. There was no traffic to my right or left, but I would not necessarily have known that. It could have happened at any time. But I'm dragging it. And the Lord kept me cool. It was just almost where if it were larger and I was going faster, I would have ended up in Napa or Ponchos. Ponchos would have been better for the dinner experience, but Napa for the parts that I probably would have needed. But I ended up going right down the median where there was the ability for traffic to pass. And I got out and I just said, praise the Lord, because the boat hung on by one chain that didn't break. And I went, how did this happen? How does a, how does a trailer just jump off the ball? Well, you guys probably would say, well, you incompetent trailer hitcher. Yes, I would agree with you. But God wasn't. That's what I'm saying. And so Rob was sharing a story in which I said, so how's the boat? Are we going to have that go on this? Somebody goes, oh, yeah, it's running good. And then it was a, but do you know? And so we started talking about the boat. And he had the same incident with a much larger boat. And it jumped off the ball. We both shared a story about the potential of a great consequence that Jesus, in the field that we were at, which was serving, right? We've got... Boats that we serve our congregation with by going on a lake at family camp. And in our field of preparing those boats, the Lord was with us in great mercy. And his was even, to me, a, I mean, a greater act of mercy, just because I know the weight of the boat that he's got. And where his predicament happened, it's just amazing. The needs that God meets in the times of us following his leading through the field is truly incredible. It's amazing. Moving back to this, it's lawful to do good on this Sabbath. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. There are good things that people get to do on Sundays. One of the privileges we have that's good for us is to be in the house of the Lord. I love it. But I've also been in different places on what we would call Sundays. And I have also found it good in where I'm at. I've been to Hawaii on a Sunday. Were you surfing? Maybe I was. What's it to you? (laughs) Were you at a luau? Could have been. Are you envying the things that I may have eaten on that day? Did you sleep in? Possibly. I don't do that a lot at all. But I know this, that in where we're at is where we're at, and Jesus is not any further in distant in doing good on his day. But I never make it a habit of being absent for too long from a place that I'm drawn to. And by the way, he, on this Sabbath day, probably always had intentions of doing what? 
going to the synagogue. This is what he was closest to. He was known for either being in a synagogue on the Sabbath or he would be at the temple on the Sabbath. If not, I guarantee you, he could conduct an awesome church service wherever he was at. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. This is verse 13. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. It's a very interesting passage in its brevity. He just said to the man, stretch it out. And in that moment, it doesn't say that he prayed. It just said that the man stretched out his hand, and it was restored as whole as the other. And there's a neat thing there is that God's intention, whether it be in increments now or ultimately in when our life tenure expires, it is wholeness that is his desire to achieve in our life. We lose body parts along the way. We lose a lot of things along the way. But it's only really just along the way. Everything that would seemingly be lost for us now is gain for us later if we understand that the Lord truly is at work restoratively. If he chooses to make an example of us in the process of restoration and it costs us something, then our mind says this, I won't challenge it, I will worship God in it. And really it's those testimonies that are extraordinarily impressive to people. We all want to actually be limited in how severely we're tested and tried in our faith. Wouldn't you agree? You don't have to nod, but I think that. I love it when my river is just like class one. It's not a lake. It's moving. I'm in an inner tube. Maybe it's only going fast enough to float a little rubber duck behind me. That's me. Inside, I feel like, no, 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 I'm macho. Class five, class six, death. But it's really not me. I've always been precautious. My kids are much more with Christy. Much they, they pursue the thrill. Knott's Berry Farm, I will advertise myself as a luggage holder for anybody that wants to take advantage of me that can keep me from going on a ride. But what I am saying is though our personalities can be different in terms of how our enthusiasm is for life, I do not less think of the Lord as one with me in what would be considered a more gentler resolution to live life safely. But my wife, she is a mountain climber, a river swimmer. She's a boat driver. And the Lord gave that heart to my kids. They're cliff jumpers and they're surfers in the same way. The Lord here is making a point that in his specific intent to be in this place, he knew that there would be a man who may have had a great desire to enjoy another part of life in the wholeness which he had not experienced. And handicaps can be that challenge. I still have one from 16 years of age. But I've never allowed it to be something that consumes me because I know that in short, it will be remedied. He puts out his hand, that was the command that he had to obey. 
What if he had stuffed it in his robe? What if he hedged and said, oh, Lord, they're watching. They're watching what you're saying to me. I know these guys. They're here every Sabbath, like I want to be. They'll kick me out. That could have been a thought. What does he do? He says, those guys have meant nothing really to me. I honor their position. But really, they're men that I have never known compassion and mercy through. Jesus, whatever you say, I'll do it. These are things that spontaneously, obviously have worked out. And it was restored as whole as the other. And the point being made here as we close in that verse, God is into restoration. Wholeness. And one of the means by which we achieve wholeness is by staying close to him as he leads us. It's a wonderful thing. It's a needed discipline. And we are being blessed as a result of it. Then the Pharisees, verse 14, went out and plotted against him. How they, notice this, might honor him, plotted against him, how they might bring him into court. It says, destroy him. What a vindictive word to use. That's the intent of calamity. Basically icing him, a street word. Taking him out. It's hard to imagine that spiritual men in the presence of God, Jesus, would even think of such a thing. As Jesus, the one who just came from the grain field, the one who just entered the synagogue, he was no less God in this episode than he ever appeared to be throughout the scriptures that we've studied. In other words, what in the world are they thinking? Answer, they're not thinking. Their minds are not fixed on God. They're fixed on position. And they're fixed on legalism. And these are the things that kill the work of the Spirit. Politics can kill the work of the Spirit. All you have to do is invest yourself at any length of time for a duration in which it is all we feed upon and it destroys the confidence that we have in God who's in control. We do not like what's happening on the world scene. We're not the first generation, though. I think we've been a graciously pampered generation, and I don't say that with any apology because God has been good to us in this season of grace. You know, I would not know what it's like to have been in my father's generation, World War II, in a fighter plane in his early 20s. Wouldn't even comprehend that, nor can I comprehend my two eldest, certainly my eldest brother in Vietnam can't comprehend it. But I can comprehend the times now, and I can say the Lord has told us about these things, and he's no less available in the crises of these times than in any times in recorded history. The fact of the matter is, will we obey, and do we want to see him, and do we see him, and where we're at? That's the point. They plot how they might destroy him. Verse 15, but Jesus, or when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Who did they not choose to follow? They didn't choose to follow the spiritual leaders of that synagogue. Notice this. It's a multitude. So where is he where all of a sudden it's a multitude? A synagogue in whatever city that he's at at that time probably was not a very large structure. They only needed 
ten men lawful to be able to have a synagogue, elders within a city. And so this is amazing too, because where the Pharisees are tracking him to indict him, he has a multitude of people with a variety of challenges, and they are drawn to him. And one person adds to another, to a collective of others, and they are literally following God wherever he's going, desiring to be touched by him in whatever manner he chooses. And if it's a multitude, it would seem to me that every single one of them believe that he is the only one that among the multitude can spot them personally and address their needs specifically. I never am, I honestly believe that in the congregations that I've been a part of, I never have ears that are hot to hear what God is doing in somebody else's life that provokes me to, does God know about that person like I do? Why them and not me? I've never thought of that. And we're, I honestly believe that that's, we're not wired to. We're wired to rejoice in the benevolence of God. It's because he's a good father. He's a loving Lord. You want to talk about equity? He knows how it works. Everybody gets what they need in the time that they need it. Sometimes it's stockpiles. And sometimes it's just the grain that falls into your hand that's exactly what your mouth needs to savor in that moment. It's sufficient. It's sufficient. And it's wonderful when we celebrate what God has done in the lives of each person as family members, even knowing that there's extraordinary testings, trials, and challenges, he's with us. He's with us. He was with me last night. I went to check on the house and I was dive bombed by a bat that's been living in there since October. And it's... <laughs> Well, I was trying to be brave. But those, they're kind of like spiders to me, flying spiders. They just, it's not really, you know. So I just had to kind of put on a crocodile Dundee attitude or a Duck Dynasty kind of mentality. And, and I said, this guy I've wanted to get for a long time. I was just thinking that. And so it swooped down, did a couple circles, opened one door, hoping he'd take that, opened another door, hoping he'd take that, opened both of the doors. Pick which one and leave. And so he flew into a window, kind of alighted on it. They've got like sticky paws or something. But he was literally clinging to the window. I get your kind of the, ee. I was just watching him. He's watching me. And then he flew again, launched from it. And then he went over to the front end of the house and got on the floor. And those guys can crawl. It's, it's ugly, but they can crawl. And I just said, Lord, what do I do? Do I sweep him out? Do I crush him? And I really couldn't. And then I saw this bucket that the sheetrock guys brought. And it was empty. I said, I can entrap him. I don't even have to really risk my life on this one. <laughs> so I did. He crawled. I watched him crawl. I said, I'm just going to trap you, and I'll figure out what to do with you tomorrow. So stuck the bucket over him, and then I could just hear him scratch the entire time. Mercy, mercy. And then I put a log on it to make sure he couldn't, you know, like do a, you know, a, a bat jump and, and knock it out and then wait for me the next morning. So at any rate, 
I know that there's a point in here, but it's hard to find it right now. So I wanted to warn the dry, the drywallers not to look under the bucket. And so I called the head guy and, and he warned them. And so they basically needed the bucket. So they put a little screw can, a screw jar or plastic screw holder over him so you could see him. And so we had an eye-to-eye moment. I said, what am I going to do with you? And, you know, I was going, well, they do eat a lot of dangerous, bad bugs, right? Or mosquitoes. They go after the Danube mosquito-passing creatures. And so, but it wasn't work. I wasn't convincing myself that. And No, they're just waiting for a neck to bite. I know that. So at any rate, but I thought, you know what? While I have power to do good, I'm going to do what I think is better. And so I put it, I was asking, what do I do actually? Because I didn't really know what to do. So I just, I think the Lord just said, take a piece of paper, slide it under the cap, slid it under the cap, tip the jar over, and I've got him. And then I basically drove one-handed to the river. I thought, this surely shows mercy. And he'll never be able to find my place again. And, and God will see this, and it's just going to be a great occasion. And, uh, and so that was my merciful act to the animal kingdom. You know, I didn't despise him for what he looked like. And I even videotaped him while he was mouthing some words at me in the process. And he was. He was scratching and, you know. And so at any rate, uh, the point being made here, yeah. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So I gave in that situation mercy with the power that I had because I love it when I'm given mercy and the power that someone else has. That's the point that I'm making. And so when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, verse 15, and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. And one day the multitudes in numbers too large to count presently and by the way, multitudes means it would be almost vanity to try and count them. They were healed, all of them. All of them, probably with one look, probably with one reaching out, probably with one small voicing, Lord, touch me. And they were healed. Any infirmity that you could think of, which it doesn't itemize, but very likely was representative of the entire multitude that was following him, all of the infirmed. Most of us become, if you would, over-sentimental to being followed by people that are perfect. But the imperfect people, the one that need to be touched and healed, well, that's, that's not so classy. Jesus made them into a class of excellence. You know, just because their desire, even as some of the songs that we were seeing expressed in them, a moment of coming into the presence of the Lord by following him. Yet he warned them and says this. Notice this. It's, again, a mark of the humility of Jesus. He warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet, saying, and this is the Lord anchoring himself in a passage of Scripture, that came to the religious organization, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the priesthood, 700 years before his birth. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. 
I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and his name Gentiles will trust. And this passage is important because it describes the disposition of those who claim him as Lord and rabbi, teacher, those who are disciples that are following right now in the multitudes, those who are with him more personally acquainted, the 12 that he prayerfully selected. And the important part here in its disposition is that in the hardships that he would have suffered and the severity of rejection from those who should have respected him and known him by the scriptures, he didn't quarrel, didn't cry out. He didn't concern himself when in spreading the message of hope. God with man, he, Jesus, sent from heaven to earth. They wouldn't hear his voice. He met broken people, and he would not break them. His heart's desire was to mend them. People, when it talks about the smoking flax, it means the fire has gone out. Have you ever had that experience where it just feels like the fire has gone out? It just feels dim. I mean, maybe that's all you can see is smoke. And God says, no, I'm not snuffing that out. I'm going to reignite it. I can do it because that's what I do. People talk about breakings, and they are <clears throat> truthful moments in which humility comes upon men and women that have said, pride is in me, and I do not want it governing me. Lord, take it. We've all had those moments. We call that, as it's resigned, a moment of breaking when the Lord just comes through and settles the issues of our heart. But it does require humility absolute humility. But when, and in these days in particular, you're going to feel and see or sense people that are giving up. But God's not giving up on them. And what we need to be able to say is, he's going to light the fire. It's just smoking. It's not doused. It's not out. The Spirit of God is, as presented in the book of Acts, a fire. It's a fire of life, a fire of empowerment for any to do what is extraordinarily above what any common person can do because God's doing it. And actually we're required every day to have that fire, if you would, not only acknowledged the Holy Spirit, but also tended by the Spirit. The embers can sometimes not be seen beneath the gray ash. What happens? There's a blowing on that dust that settles over those red-hot coals. And if there's any kindling left at all, even the smallest amount of what we would say is coal, one breath from God, and the fire just goes, and the wood burns. And then God makes provision that it be added to again. So we're going to stop there. I think it's a good stopping point. 
And we'll look at next week concerning what the Lord is saying with regarding a house that is divided, that it cannot stand. We'll see how that both pertains to us spiritually and I believe as well governmentally. We want to know that. We want to know its meaning domestically as well. We don't want to be divided. We want to be united. And it comes better from God's mouth than it does from presidential campaigns because we can believe it. And we need to believe in that which is authentically true and pertinent for us. Let's pray and then we'll be led from this teaching into worship and our closing song. Lord, we thank you for our time in the word tonight, our privilege to be able to sit before you and to learn of you, to hear the things that are obviously contemporary for us, even though they're historical as we look back on it. It applies, Lord, today. And so, Lord, we just want to say, may we apply ourselves to the word. May we realize that both the ground that you stand upon, you are indeed one measured by the grounds in which you invoke justification of who you are and your expectation of what we shall become and that it is not a vain hope, it is true. So thank you for hearing us, blessing us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
That was nice worship, wasn't it? Um, one of the things I wanted to announce is that the college study, I believe, resumes this Saturday at our place. Johnny Candy's. Okay, so, huh? Johnny Candy's place. So college, that's going to be seven o'clock. Johnny Candy's place. You know where it's at. If not, get directions. Alrighty. Sam, are you teaching? Okay. Thank you. God bless you guys.